The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today we bring you part two of Griffin Barber's discussion with John Ringo and Lydia Scherer about Through the Storm. A quick word of warning. This far-ranging discussion is quite a pleasure to listen to, and we get some great insights into the novel. However, it is a little bit more PG-13 or possibly even R-rated than our typical podcast. So if you're listening with kids or would prefer not to hear that sort of content, uh, you may want to listen carefully or just skip this one. At any rate, here, let's take a listen to part two of Through the Storm. Yeah. Tyrant. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I would avoid her like the plague any day of the week. And I just would want nothing to do with her. And it's sad. Like, obviously, she holds responsibility for who she is chosen to become and, and she makes every day. But also, you know, she has had a very hard time of it in similar ways to Ronnie. Um, and, for that reason, like Ronnie also struggles to be a decent human being. He's not an immature little squalling child. Um, so, you know, kind of sad, but also she made the choice and I don't have anything to do with her. So. Right. Well, cool. So uh, I think I asked this last time, but I figure things may have changed since, since the last time I asked. But Warmonger or Transdimensional Hunter, which game from Through the Storm would you play more? Warmonger, just because I never leave the room. Yeah, well, so I was about to say the opposite for the exact opposite reason. I'm very physical, and I love being out in the open air and getting exercise and going on walks and runs and stuff. I would love something like TD Hunter, and I have heard from a lot of fans that they really wish someone would invent a game like this. Because if you could, and there's things kind of inching close, like the whole Wii stuff, and they've got haptic gloves now, and you've got VR, you put the VR headset on, and you've got your gloves or your controllers, and you can kind of do stuff. But the idea of having just light glasses, not some heavy like headset, that's right. just weird, um, and having an overlay to the real world as opposed to a completely like walled off yeah. fake world, being able to go out into the real and, and see the world around you in, in the manner of Pokemon Go, um, to where you could, I remember sometimes when you'd like look on your little screen on your phone and it would show you your room and it would show a little Pokemon like sitting by your bed. Uh, and you could like, you know, throw the ball and, and catch it. It's right by your bed or it's like sitting on your sink or something. Like yeah, that was the one really. That they do for, uh, 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 it's the one that got Henry Cavill in, uh, Witcher. Oh, yeah. The Witcher, Witcher. the Witcher game is even better about that. Because you actually have to fight these things, and they move around in the room. So you have to follow them around with your phone. It's getting closer yeah. and closer. Well, so if we had the technology to just, like, put on literal glasses and, right. like, be immersed in that world and then just have, like, light battens that, you know, as described in the books, can morph into the, the physical, not quite the same weight, but the physical size and diameter and length of these weapons. And then, like, go, you know, if you... Obviously, if you're outside, like, you've got the grass to kind of soften your landing. But, you know, in a gym or like out in the grass, like be able to actually fight monsters. Like there were times writing 
that I would get up and start doing these motions and like working out in my head what was, you know, what was actually reasonable. I mean, I, I have a black belt in Taekwondo, so I'm familiar with certain moves and, you know, like mm-hmm. different roles and different um, um, dodging maneuvers and everything. And so I was actually up and moving around at certain points, like to write this book. Um, and I would just, I would love to be able to just go outside and you know, it would be so much fun. Good exercise. We've got ray gun noises. It's definitely a pain for your I know. Uh, so, uh, through the storm relies more heavily on questions of leadership and responsibility than proving personal prowess and a right to be there. Uh, like it was in, into the real, um, was this baked into the idea when it came to you or something that grew out of the characters themselves, uh, or the overall story arc that you got working on? Yeah, that was baked into the story arc. Um, yeah, the first but- one was about was about individual personal growth and and coming to terms with themselves. The second one is the second one was about coming to terms with team dynamics. Yeah. Um, and the reality of the situation in terms of psychologies and who's who's the actual leader, you know. Um, well, and also Lynn, Lynn being an introvert, which is very different for me. I am very extroverted and very A type. And like, if I had been in Lynn's place, I would not have let Ronnie like get away with like I would have real soon been like, all right, Ronnie, like, come on, let's just like duke it out, okay? Well, Winner takes Lynn the is Lynn is Lynn is more like that than you think. I mean, be clear about it. She was an introvert. Well, yes. Because she was just in a situation where being an introvert was the easiest thing for her to do, and it was difficult to do other things. Right. Yes. Now that she is in a situation to be an A-type, she is an A-type. She's just yes. a very quiet A-type. Very quiet A-type. And she, it is not her desire to, to create and resolve conflict. Like, she would rather just shoot it, you know? She doesn't like drama. No, right. no, no drama. She yeah. does not like drama. And yeah. so because becoming the leader would have caused a lot of drama and would have required that she, you know, do things that were very distasteful, like she was just con- not content. Obviously, she was extremely annoyed. But like there's that struggle. Like how, how long are you going to just sit back and let Ronnie be a total jerk face as a leader like how long, and see, that's why I brought Connor in, honestly, because there was, when John and I talked it over for like the outline and try to figure stuff out, there was, there was going to be some changes on the teams. Um, but we weren't really sure starting out, like what would make the best combination. Um, and there's, there's a good reason why Connor and Ronnie did what they did. I won't be too specific for spoiler reasons, but you know, Lynn needed to see the difference of oh, a yeah. team without Ronnie, Ronnie need to see the difference of a team without Lynn in it. And right. Ronnie saw that and he did not like it at all. Right. And he comes back kind of like, okay. Uh, and, and Lynn needed to be, you know, pushed into that leadership position and pushed over her distaste of personal conflict. Um, because, you know, there are certain parts of our personalities and circumstances that if we don't have that push, we're just not going to get past him. We, okay. we don't want to get past him in, until like we need to, until we're forced into that by circumstance. So uh, leadership and team building are a huge factor in the story and in the heroine's journey. Uh, did either of you have much in the way of formal leadership roles in your lives to draw on, or did you rely on observations of those you dealt with in leadership positions before? More observations. 
more observational. Well, uh, John, I mean, you were you were in the military, so I'm sure you had leadership roles during that time period. <laughs> Maybe. No, I avoided them like the plague. I was a member of the E4 Mafia. The E4 Mafia is not leadership. Ah, okay, the E4 that's Mafia true. are the the E4 Mafia are the people who have the most experience in actually getting the work done. Okay, they're not the ones just sit around supervising. Right, they're the ones that actually do the job the best, which is why you never piss off the E4 Mafia. Is is that but, basically New Centurion? Like that whole book is E4 one, Mafia. The, the Centurion, the last Centurion, not New Centurion, the last Centurion, right. your novel. Like that whole thing was just basically E4 Mafia? No. Not even oh, I'm getting, sorry, I'm getting the numbers mixed up. Uh, logistics is the last Centurion. Um, but yes, I, I get what you mean. I, I don't think I've actually really referenced the E4 Mafia very much in my books, but no, I was not in leadership roles. Um, okay. I have I have been in leadership roles minorly in like I was a camera store manager, you know, that kind of thing. I've done a lot of stuff. Um but what it was really about is that Lynn is going to have to um what is uh, my brain does not work very well sometimes and this is one of those nights when it's not working where I'm actually sick again. Um, so my brain is just not working. What is Lynn's alter ego's name? Larry Coughlin. Larry Coughlin. Um, Lynn is a lot more Larry Coughlin than she lets on. You know, Lynn couldn't do Larry Coughlin as well as she does if, if she wasn't internally Larry Coughlin. Right. Um, and so there's a couple of points is a couple of places in this book where they're they're doing something and Lynn now in a leadership role is like you know do this right now right and you know like man for a second there you sound just like Larry Hoffman right. um, <laughs> because that that's eventually in this books going to be revealed. And and people were starting to hey, hang on a second. She's Larry Coughlin, right? Um, but the that will have to be at a Denny Mall, right? Um, but she is starting to let her inner Larry. And that is when it starts to get fun, is when Lynn stops being Lynn and she starts being Linry or whatever. Um <laughs> Um, I Lair like that. Lynn. <laughs> Lynn <Ree>. Yeah. <laughs> Lair Lynn. Lair, Lair Lynn. Right. I like Lynn Ree. I like Lynn Ree. Lynn Lynn And that's when it starts to get fun. Um, you know, there is the angst. There is all of that stuff. There was somebody, I, I, I was at Liberty Con this year. And, you know, standing around talking, smoking cigars. And somebody somebody said, you know, I, I really wish you would continue the Prince Roger books. And I said, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the guy standing there goes, I just could not get into this. And everybody kind of turned and looked at him. He goes, the main character was just such a whiny little bitch. Uh, 
<laughs> and everybody goes, you only got like a third of the way through the first book. Did you? He goes, yeah, I mean, I got that far and I was like, I can't read this. I, I have no idea how John Rango could ever write something like this. You know, right. the character is so awful, mm-hmm. right? And that's how he starts, right? Yep. Um, the hero's Lynn, journey. Yeah. <laughs> Lynn starts off as a, you know, she's she's a quiet little house mouse hiding in the corner playing her video game. But at the same time, she is also Larry. And as Lynn and Larry start to become the same character, the real Lynn begins to run. Right. Who is not by any stretch of the imagination. The Lynn of the first book. Yeah. Um, yep. And that's when it starts to get good. When the, when her, it's actually her dad starts to come out. Because that's who Larry is. Larry is her father, is, is her father. It's, it's not the same character as her father, right. but it, right. it is the part of her that is her dad. I, right. I, I feel like it is the part of her that her father would have nurtured. It is the part of her that if her father had been there and like, obviously her, her mom did the best she could. Um, and obviously she has to take some responsibility for not being more open to her mother about the bullying she faced and like her problems at school. But if you think like if her father had been there and if she'd had a close relationship with her father, you know, most likely her father, she would have been open about this with her father um, to at least some consent with some extent and if you'd heard even a whiff of it he would have started digging like you bet he would have um and so and then he would have nurtured that like that part of her that was just crushed and and like ripped out of her and and she almost went through a disassociation um to where the woman that she should have grown into um was just savaged by this bullying and so in a, in a coping mechanism, she can only live out that person in virtual and her in the real persona is just a reaction to it, like a survival of the trauma. And so the book series is them integrating back into one person. That was something that I built into the character. I was very, very unsure about. I mean, I want to understand, I want you to understand that I wrote it and I went, I based that on a particular girl that I knew. Okay, but I've gotten lambasted even by fan female fans about too much too much emphasis on female form. Um, and to to clarify this for people who aren't too into the books, Lynn is very busty, and she started being very busty very young, and she was one of those kids in fifth grade, one of those girls in fifth grade who was going through her period, and all the other girls weren't. And she was getting her boobs, and guys were being weird with her. And it, it wasn't even so much it, there was bullying, there was bullying about it, but there was also that people were just so weird. With her. And so she she retreated from that. Um, and that was based on a girl that I knew in high school at Winter Park, who did everything she possibly could to cover up her figure because she was like Dolly Parton would go, "Oh my God, your back must hurt." Um, and I was very unsure about using that. And then Lydia took that and ran with it in ways that I suspect might have been a little bit personal. Um, and and so it did. It worked very well. But I was very, very unsure about doing that. I don't know if I, like when we were first talking, 
I think I kind of halfway said I'm not too sure about this, but I don't think Lydia actually heard me when I said I'm not too sure about this because she just went with it. Well, because because John, I I feel like what might have the whole thing about you not uh, about Lynn not liking running, I think that was personal. Oh oh yeah, okay. like, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> like, that's not, not something not for, that, that immediately went through my mind yeah. was well, that she for, would not, not like for, to run. Not me personally, in terms of my body type, because I don't have that problem. But when I was in Marine Corps training in ROTC, I knew several girls who were very well endowed, were beautiful, uh, and bitched all the time about, about how running. horrific it was running, like running. It was just awful. Like I, I knew some of them who later have gone on to have boob jobs to reduce, to get it smaller and like a manageable size so that it wasn't just killing their backs. So John, I wonder if some of that unsurety at the beginning, uh, might have just come from a place of the fact that, you know, you weren't a woman, you didn't grow up uh, having to deal with certain things. And so you had an idea of something that, that you observed, but maybe you weren't sure how. It was one of the things that I said when we first talked is that, you know, I can kind of write a teenage female, but I can't write it really well. Yeah. Because I'm not, I've never been a teenage female. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I can't completely put my head. Yeah, and then, you know, I, I like to be able to write anybody, but I cannot write a BLM social justice warrior activist from the point of view of them being a a sympathetic character because I just can't put myself in their heads. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I actually find that you know these aren't people that I greatly like, but I find it a weakness on the, on my part as a writer that I can't get far enough into their heads to understand. That they they really feel they're the good guy. Um, yeah, well, for a, a five novel arc, right? Huh? I mean, it, it's one thing to do it for a few scenes and to get the gist, but to do yeah. it for a five novel arc is yeah. something that, that requires yeah. a little bit more, you know. Uh, yeah. Basis well, I and I tell people when they ask, you know, how 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 did you start collaborating with John Ringo, et cetera, et cetera, and I told them like, well, I he was looking for a specific type of co-writer and I happened to be in the right place at the right time and presented myself professionally. Um, and, and that you were looking for of a younger female co-author to write the perspective of a younger female character. Right. Um, and it, and and I, I wanted to do it. Jody wanted to do it. Yes. Yes. We are we, your daughter. Is that right? No, no. Jody no. Lynn Nye. Oh, no, Jody what? Lynn Nye wanted to do it. Excuse me. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you, you had mentioned that you had tried to get one of your daughters interested in co-writing it with you, but that she yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Um, and the thing that got me about, you know, what, what clarified it for me was I, I came by and I said, hey, would, would you mind if I took a look at some of your books? And I actually, before I talked to you, you know, we went outside and I was smoking and you're, you know, trying to figure out what, what I was I talking was so about. Confused. I was, I was rambling, so confused. Right. Um, I, uh, I, I looked. I didn't read the book. I looked through to see what your prose and dialogue was like. That was it. I was looking for somebody who could do prose and dialogue. And your prose and dialogue was awesome. So I went, yeah, okay. Because I made the mistake of getting involved with people who they 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 can tell a good story, but they can't write prose and dialogue. Um, and so it was, I wanted to make sure it was dialogue. If I recall correctly, your comment was something to the effect of, well, you don't make any of the mistakes that I hate. <laughs> yeah. 
you don't. And that's so, what I tell uh, people. I like he yeah. he opened my book, flipped through it, and he's like, "Well, you don't make any mistakes that I hate." Yeah, so. you don't. Um, which the mistakes that I hate are the mistakes that are are things that most people do. Yeah, they don't realize it. Most people don't realize why they don't yeah, they like reading the a book. They just close it. Yeah, they just close it. Yeah. Um, there's one thing that people go back and forth about just talking about the craft of writing. There's things that people go back and forth about, but David Weber was adamant on one item. And I have since begun to understand why he was adamant. And sometimes it's hard to do in certain ways. Um, but it is never, ever start a dialogue paragraph with prose. Never say, uh, Joe looked up at the sky. Uh, I wonder why the sky is blue, comma, close quote, he said. And have that, you know, it is, Joe looked up at the sky, paragraph. I wonder why, you know, and then you do the dialogue. Never embed dialogue. Um, or I, I really, I don't do it. And when I, I frequently had co-authors that do a lot of embedding of dialogue. And I'm like, I'm not into embedding dialogue. You know, it needs to be broken out. You rarely embed dialogue. Um, you do it occasionally, and sometimes it's deeply embedded. And when it's deeply embedded, I'll break it out. That's one of the yeah. things that I did. I did actually do some editing out there. I did. Good job. Good job. So uh, we get a peek at the possible origin of the TD monsters, or at least first contact in the uh, very first chapter of this book. Do you have right. plans to develop the TDMs more heavily as an alien species, or are they always meant to be uh, completely unknowable boogeymen? They're, they're, they're meant to be completely unknowable boogeymen. Um, we don't have the technology to truly understand what's going on. Now, we'll eventually, they'll eventually realize, realize what is going on, but a true firm understanding It'd probably take another fifty years of tech, right? And we don't have that kind of time. So the penultimate question: What, aside from its considerable and entertainment value, do you hope readers will carry with them after reading through the storm? Lydia, uh, I was about to go like this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what I would like them to, to take away from it is. Um, science fiction is always very, very good. This is an adventure story. It's a coming-of-age story. But it also explores <clears throat> problems of current and future technology. Um, again, going back to something that I think we got recorded with uh, things like deep fake porn, right. um, which I also explore in my Substack series. Um Here's one for you. You know, Griffin, you're a former police officer. Yeah, retired. Um, hentai is not illegal, even though it's it's child sexual. It's not illegal. Okay, so um, if you do a deep fake of the Olsen twins when they were 12. <laughs> so... Before right. I went too, too deep into it, this. Is it, uh, it, is it wrong? Well, is it, it wrong? It would yeah. Depend on, it would depend on the state whether it's illegal or not. It would also depend on the state whether it's illegal or not. Uh, 
And no, hentai was ruled by the Supreme Court as not being illegal because no children are harmed. Um, and but if you're using, porn, but if you're is, using deep fake images, certainly it's civil. It's, it's a civil suit waiting to happen. It's it's simply uh, it's just a form of, of CGI. I mean, all the deep fake is, is CGI. Right, but using something, be a, I am horrified by. It. Right. Okay, I'm horrified by the concept. But right now it's not illegal. Well, the law has to change, right? It has to it has to, to make it illegal. You actually have to get into some very interesting constitutional questions. Um to what extent is it First Amendment expression? If you do it in such a way as it's political, then it's First Amendment expression. Um, yeah, but if you're using someone's face just as an excuse, if you're using pol political stuff as an excuse to protect your right to create porn, for instance, with a certain person's face, I'm hoping that our courts will be smart enough to see that. Yeah. Like the the very first decisions will be out with on that will be the this is civilly actionable and we're waiting for the legislature to make it uh, into yeah. a, a criminal situation I, i'm sure that'll be the the result of of <laughs> the first especially if somebody uses the likeness of someone famous it'll be a yeah. or, or it'll be a zip line <laughs> right to the legislature making it illegal well, for uh, a very long time people have done things like <laughs> Uh, Photoshop Scarlett Johansson's head on Putin and Goodbye. Right, yes. Um, you know, it. And please understand something. I'm horrified by it. I agree with you. But I also see some, some really interesting questions because, uh, okay, so you do a deep fake of uh, Donald Trump doing, you know, something weird sexually or, or you know, Hillary Clinton spanking Donald Trump naked. Okay. Right. Don't put that picture in my head. Curse you. So, yeah. The left is all into it now. It's totally okay. Right? Um, or certain people are all into it. <laughs> so, the, the thing to remember on that, so you're looking at... The, the point is, during the storm, it talks about what these things are and and how we face them and give some suggestions, like you said, it becomes civilly actionable and it it can be criminalized. Um, so one of the points, one of the values of science fiction is to look at what we might be facing. You asked the question. Yeah. What right. we might be facing and how do we respond to it. Yeah. And then um, you have that wonderful discussion between the PR uh, firm guy. Well, Jamal and yeah. and uh, Lynn, where they're specifically talking about exactly that, uh, and I found that really compelling because it was, again, it was asking those questions. It's like you know, there's some really hard stuff, and he talks about the law as it's happening because yeah. the law is a living thing; it continues to grow, and sometimes right. in negative ways, sometimes in positive ways. So that's you really know, you have you have regulatory law, and then you have case law, right? And one of the worst pieces of case law out there right now is case law on qualified immunity. And the reason that it's such a terrible piece of case law is that it said, if 
there is a precedent for it being a, a violation of the Constitution that is a constitutional violation from this point forward, which that was 1983. If there is a precedent, if there is no precedent, then it is not a constitutional violation. So every time that some cop comes up with something unprecedented to do to somebody, it's not a constitutional violation. Hang on a second. Wait. <laughs> you know, this horrific thing which has happened to this person, nobody had ever done before. So it's not a constitutional violation, even though it's clearly an egregious constitutional violation. But nobody had ever even thought of setting the guy on fire. You know, the, the, nobody had ever actually pulled out, of, you know, and, and set a suspect on fire because they were pissed off at him. Oh, no, I'm well, it's qualified immunity. It, nobody's ever done it before, so it's not a constitutional violation. Um, that's that's the gap in law generally is yeah. if it hasn't been thought of before it hasn't the technology hasn't yeah well out. i mean ai right. and and ai i i tiptoe around the whole ai question with hugo uh because it's really not a bear that i want to poke um right. but i think readers will enjoy <laughs> it i worked out well in 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 this universe this universe is not a frankenstein universe right this universe is not a Technology will 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 kill us all. Universe, okay? It's a it's a it's a technologically utopian universe, yeah. um, and I I like that. I mean that was that was built in that was built into it. That and AI AI has worked out well. It's yeah. been going for a long time. It's not dystopic cyberpunk. It's not the world has come to an end because the AIs have taken over and destroyed everything. It's AIs actually run things really, really well. Yeah. Um, one of the things that that we didn't touch on, because when we started, when I started looking at this, the AI revolution, which has just hit like a tidal wave, yeah, had not yeah. hit yet. Yeah, it hadn't because because I started. You sent me that initial seed in 2017, and then I started book one in the very beginning of 2020, right before the pandemic. Right. Um, and so, like that, I mean, obviously, like there was, like AI was out there, obviously. Um, yeah. And I had done some research on all the systems that AI currently runs and even more that it will be running but the a whole question of like AI AML and was out there and mm -hmm. this is still this aml okay, um yeah. automated machine language yeah automated machine learning yeah. but the sort of ai that we are seeing right now was not the predictive like chat gpt chat gpt I mean, and all it was, it was out there but not like for the general public like it was yeah. being developed but it hadn't yeah. hit in the general sense. yeah they were scraping they were scraping our books for it Yep. Yeah, they were. <laughs> um, so for for my answer, it, it takes a pretty different side of things. Um, I, I really did look love looking at like futuristic technology for this book. Um, but the thing for me that is, you know, closest to my heart that I hope readers take from it um, is reflected in the title of the first book, which is Into the Real. Um, and, you know, I was writing the first book during the pandemic. Um, and, and in the aftermath of that. And 
you know, I even put a little bit in the beginning, you know, kind of referencing, because this happens in the book happens in 2040. So it's looking back on the pandemic era or, the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. COVID era or whatever, um, and how people that, you know, virtual is fine and there's no really, really reason to get, like people are still starting to like get out and connect again. And there wasn't a lot of people, there was not really any push or really any desire motivation to kind of get out. Um, And I think that that is happening to the generation right after me, which I guess I'm Gen, I'm, I'm a millennial. So the next one is Gen Y. Gen Z. Gen Z. So Gen Z, not quite so much Gen Z, but also somewhat Gen Z and onward. Um, that just the internet in general, having the internet at your fingertips, being able to do everything on the internet, be, having all your social circles on the social circles on the internet, like truly, we are losing connection not just of our own physical bodies and not just of our communities, but we're losing connection of the the thing the the we're almost losing connection of our, our physicality, but in the process, we're losing connection of our responsibilities and our calling to the heroic story that is life. Because even though there are many things you can do online, you cannot live online. And I don't use the word live lightly. Um, anybody who claims that you can live online, you know that they are not actually talking about living. They are talking about existence in a pale, flat, unhealthy way. Um, And so, and yeah, because we are physical beings. I can't actually get into why I did. I know, I know, but we are physical embodied beings. And that is, that is the, and I mean, who knows, maybe science will one day say, oh, we're all just the matrix all anyway. Like we were never physical, like whatever right now science we are physical embodied beings and whether or not that will change one day our mental health and our emotional health and our mental maturity and our emotional maturity and just growth it all happens physically and so i think our generations currently are being unfortunately and not even on purpose it's just the way technology is developing are being you know, lied to or not, not so much deceived. I don't think it's deliberate so much, but just lulled into this false idea that, that they can fail to step into the real and in physical body, like take up their responsibilities and live in, and that is hurting them so much like depression and mental illnesses and loneliness and, you know, uh, just inability to like socially interact with people and like health and all of these, you know, diseases that our bodies are taking on. Like it's, it's, it's a pandemic or I might not be using the right term. Sorry. I, 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 it is a, it is a problem. In the, in the other series that I'm working on. Yeah. Uh, Um, It is a problem. Oh, sorry. In the other series that I'm working on, there's conversation Mm -hmm. between two of the characters, the main character and his sort of love interest. Um, I say sort of love interest because kind of from the beginning, even though he's like, we shall marry someday, he knows she's not the right girl for him and he's not the right guy for her. He knows that from the beginning. Um, but 
And he's not like I'm trying to get in your pants. It's just we shall marry and have many children. Uh, you shall bear. He actually says at one point, "You shall bear me many sons." Uh, <laughs> and she's a she's a teenage supermodel. She's used to guys trying to you know just get into her pants. But he's funny about because he's just. But uh, they're actually at lunch, and of course. You know, she is an influencer and all that. They're both also secretly super junior superheroes. Um, and so she's like, I'm having lunch with a friend that I know from an after-school volunteer group, right? Which <laughs> is, um, and, you know, she's she's posting it, and it goes to all of the social media because she's got a whole team work for her, right? And and she goes, you don't do social media at all, do you? He goes, no. And she goes, I mean, why not? He goes, well, let me tell you, back in the Victorian era, and this is true, they used to go around with carts of gin, and people would get whole pints of gin and drink it. Um, and the Royal Navy grog ration was a pint of 151 rum that they were given every afternoon. That was their grog ration. Everyone was a raging alcoholic. And that was considered just totally normal. That, what what do you mean you don't get absolutely hammered all day long at your work? Um, there was a person who was talking to me about uh, a Polish shipyard that, and uh, a, a Western company had taken over this Polish shipyard. And every single day, the workers would come to work just absolutely hammered. And, of course, there's accidents going on all the time. Guys are being injured because they're drunk off their butts. And the way they figured it out is these guys would, when they were coming to work every morning, they would stop and they would get a, it was like a dough ball and a big thing of vodka. And they'd eat the dough ball and drink a big thing of vodka. So they started fixing breakfast that didn't have any alcohol, but it was a full breakfast they could get for free. And that eliminated the, the problem of them being hammered when they got to work. Um, raging alcoholism used to be the norm. If you were not a raging alcoholic, it, you were considered weird. Um, that is what social media is. It is the raging alcoholism of people who were totally unprepared for new technology. For a very long time, you drank some type of alcohol because most water was poisonous. Uh, it would, you know, it gave you dysentery. Um, and so drinking some form of alcohol, alcoholic beverage, was how you kept from getting dysentery. And then distilled alcohol came along and kaboom, right? So it's going to take us a long time to be able to just sit. Yeah. Well, and part of Into the Real is helping that younger generation realize that sips need to happen. And so I hope that what my readers take away, whether they are younger or they are older, and they just need that reminder, um, is that it is so important, uh, you know, to to disengage, not to like swear off it or like demonize it or whatever, but that the real world is the, the real world is where people are born and breathe and live and die. And 
to save the world, you have to step into the real. And yeah. I hope I hope people are encouraged to step into the world and and, and save the world like Lynn is doing. So that's a that's a great answer. That's so, a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> so last question. Uh, well, I thought that was the penultimate question. That was the penultimate question. So the last question. Ultimate question is the, the ultimate last question. And penultimate is before the last one. So what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at? And uh, what other work do you have in the pipeline for us? We've heard a little bit about some other stuff that John's been working on. Lydia, do you have some other stuff as well? Uh, yes. Book eight of my urban fantasy series, uh, The Lily Singer Adventures, comes out March 1st. It's on pre-order right now. So if you've read any of my magical adventure, snarky humor, talking cat fiction, then the next book is going to be available soon. And in December, we're doing a, actually starting November 21st, we are launching a plushie campaign to get the snarking talking cat turned into a adorable little plushie toy. So if you like, if you would like to have Sir Edgar Allan Kipling for your very own, to snuggle and annoy just as you do with your regular cats, then keep an eye out. Uh, you can sign up for my news newsletter on my website, lydiashare.com, and I'll be sending information out there, and I'll be posting it on my Facebook and my social media. And so I'm just focused right now on you know promoting through the storm and getting book eight of the Lily Singer Adventures ready to print and release in March, um, and then I'll be working on the next TD Hunter book. So. It's funny. As you were telling oh, me that, there was a yeah. cat fight outside of my office door. Oh, lovely, lovely. And as far as conventions go, if anyone's watched, well, I guess by the time people watch this, um, it may be a little bit later, but um, I am doing a book signing tour, um, which ends on November 18th in Cincinnati at Joseph Beth Booksellers from 3 to 6 p.m. Um, and after that, I don't think I'm doing any more conventions until the spring, since I'll be producing a book. Uh, but I will be at uh, Lexington Comic and Toy Convention the first weekend in March. Um, and then I believe I'll be at Fantasy in April, which is in Durham, North Carolina. It's one of Dave Weber's um, little home cons, I guess. Um, and then I'll be at Liberty Con, obviously, which hopefully John Ringo will be there as well. Um, and then who knows in the summer, maybe Gen Con, maybe Dragon Con, something like that. And you, Doc? Now I'm not scheduled for Dragon. We. Miriam and I may be doing Dragon this year. It's low in the air. Um, the only one I'm really doing anymore is Liberty. Um, and I haven't done a book signing in forever. I don't even have uh, an ID that I can fly anymore. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Um, I am currently, I've got a series that I'm doing on Substack. Um, it's 50 bucks a year, and for that, you get all of book one, half of book two, all of book three, and yeah, say half of book four. Um, the Montana side, I talked early on in this about you know, you sit down and actually write it, and it, it ends up being completely different. And the Montana side of the story had never existed before, so I'm still trying to figure out what that is. Um, uh, that is a teenage superhero story where the, the young teen protagonist was raised in East Baltimore as a white kid in foster care and uh, already had a serious reputation on the street when he, he became, when he uh, acquired superpowers. 
um, and as it turns out, is secretly Bruce Wayne. Um, his mother was the heir to a billion dollar fortune, is his late mother. And there is a global, I will phrase it as QAnon conspiracy, um, which was which was who killed his mother. Um, and uh, there is there are also counter conspiracies. So it and that's, is a, that's available on your Substack. That's on Substack. So it is a teenage superhero cyberpunk conspiracy spy versus spy ghetto rat novel. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> it's it's like let's take six different genera six different genres and jam them together. Cool. Um, and and as you go along, it's like just one, you know, another thing just like pops out of nowhere, you know, and then another there's thing a, pops there's out. Another, there's another there's another anthology I, from I forgot the the theological demonic uh uh sort of urban fantasy aspect as well. Um although it's not it's it's specifically Christian demonology stuff. Um that is also part of the whole universe it's all over the place um and, and then you also have an anthology coming out for the uh black tide rising universe uh that's coming out pretty soon i think right yeah, yeah. absolutely i think that might be next spring i'm not sure that have we no. been told the date yet on that i i guess i haven't i don't remember yeah, and then so we can look for you on the Substack. We can look for you in. Uh, um, and Spain. next spring, I have my first new novel from Bain coming out since I don't know when, um, which is a colonization story. Um, and it's essentially Earth gets picked up and the population of Earth gets broken up into multiple different terraformed planets because the Earth is about to be destroyed. Um, and in, and it it's just like you're on Earth for like a page, and then you are in a space station, certainly a terraformed planet, and it's just like that. Um, and our publisher Tony Weisskopf was not a big fan of it at first because she said it was just a guy going fishing. Um, I was a huge fan of H. B. Piper when I was a kid. And I loved his, I liked his fuzzy books. Not, the fuzzies were fun and everything. They were cute, blah, blah. But I loved all of the out-of-doors stuff that went on in it. And this is a guy who's in his 60s is suddenly in his 20s. And it's just figuring, trying to figure out how to get to that world that is covered with megafauna, you know, gigantic bears and crocodiles and all this other stuff. He doesn't care. So he can go fishing. He, he wants to go fishing. <laughs> he wants to go fishing and hunting and just go have, just get on that planet and explore it. Do we have a title uh, for that yet? Beyond the Rangers. Um, it comes from, uh, again, it, it's a, the title is drawn from a Kipling story, The Explorer. Um, to voice a strong and conscious brings interminable changes, something lost beyond the ranges, lost and waiting for you. Uh, and it's all about just exploring this new world and 
uh, trying not to be eaten by crocodiles. Excellent. Uh, Sounds and great. Tony finally said yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's coming out in. Uh, she had uh, somebody come in and write an additional storyline of somebody who isn't having a good time. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Chapter 14 Oni Moon Tinker woke with her head pounding and stared in confusion at the strange ceiling above her. For several minutes, it seemed like a normal white plaster ceiling. Then she felt as if a long, thin-limbed spider was picking its way across her forehead. She bolted upright, swatting at her brow. Her fingers found nothing to kill, nor was there anything now on her lap except a spill of fine linen sheets. She sat on a futon mattress, level on the floor, with a nest of sheets, blankets, and pillows so comforting to look at that she nearly sank back into them. Things were wrong, though, and she dragged her eyes back to the ceiling. Same plain white ceiling? Or was it? She got the vague impression that something had changed, only she couldn't put a finger on what. A few feet from the end of the mattress was a stone wall with a deep-set window, Sitting on the floor, she could only see a slice of blue sky. She crawled to the wall, having difficulty controlling her overly light limbs. She looked out the window and gasped. A city rolled out to the horizon, endless heavy stone buildings with red clay roof tiles. It reminded her of martial arts vids. As she stared hard at it, she finally made out the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers, converging to make the Ohio, meaning she was on Mount Washington, not far from Oil Can's apartment, only at least one reality removed. Whatever they called the city below, it wasn't Pittsburgh. Wondering where you are? She turned and discovered that a female dressed in a kimono, feet tucked under her, sat in the far corner of the room, watching her. Had she always been there? Tinker's mind was too drug-clouded for her to remember. No, Tinker said, not because it was the truth, she was dying to know, but mostly because it was the opposite of what the female wanted her to say. Obstinacy will get you nowhere, the female said. It's all I have at the moment, so I'll stick with it. Tinker went back to staring out the window. This wasn't Earth, nor Elf Home, but something beyond Elf Home. Judging by the room she was in, the narrow twisting roads, and the lack of any outward sign of machinery, the technology level of the reality was on par with Elf Home. Unlike the Elf World, though, 
it seemed as if this place staggered under Earth's population problems. You're on Onihida, the female said. There is no escape. No need for bars on the window. The whole world was a prison. Still, Tinker examined the possibilities for escape. The building she was in continued the Oriental theme, only on fortress scale. The outside wall was of massive stones and was mortared tightly, presenting seriously scary rock-climbing potential. The drop down to the ground was thirty or forty feet. A misstep would put her down over the cliff edge, too, adding two hundred feet to the fall. All things considered, she should find another escape route. Tinker turned her attention finally to the female. She seemed familiar. While lacking the elfin ears, she was beautiful in the way of elves. Perfection in the small, poured, unblemished skin, symmetrical features, a cascade of red-gold hair, and eyes of a vivid reddish-brown. Who are you? I am Taji Chiyo. What did you do to Pony? The little horsey betrayed you, Taji said casually, but her eyes sharpened with interest, as if she wanted to see the pain her words caused. No, he didn't. Riki did. You will call me Lady Chiyo. And yes, he did. He drove off and left you. Ta-ta. I don't know how you did it, but he didn't betray me, Tinker growled. Pony wouldn't do that. And you have no reason to tell me the truth, Chewy. Chiyo. Lady Chiyo. Look, bitch, you snared me this way because you needed to get around Pony. Tinker scrambled for facts to support her gut feeling. If he was one of you, he could have delivered me up in the rolls at any time. The first day Windwolf left me at the lodge, or all the next day while I was running all around Pittsburgh. Hell, Riki talked me into ditching Pony at the scrapyard just before the wyvern snapped me. That probably pissed you all off, didn't it? You got me all by myself and the wyverns showed up unannounced. Chiyo's eyes went wide, and the startled look fit another piece of the puzzle together. You're Maynard's secretary. Was. Chiyo rose out of the awkward-looking sitting position with grace and poise. Someone else does that petty work now. If you want to know what happened to your warrior, come with me. Chiyo glided to the door with little delicate footsteps, nearly completely masked by her flowing kimono. Tinker thumped after her, annoyed with the way her feet seemed enormous. Had they always been that big? Or was it a side effect of the drug that Riki had given her, making them look bigger? Chiyo had paused at the door. She noticed Tinker's inspection of her feet and gave a small, smug smile. Tinker decided at the first possible point to step on those delicate lady points with her steel-shod feet. Hard. Lady Chiyo frowned slightly, slid open the door, and hurried down the hall in tiny little steps. There were two burly armed guards outside the door, bracketing it. Tinker slipped between them, trying blithely to ignore them. I'm not scared of you, I'm not scared. Oh, gods, she wished she and Pony were home safe. Lady Chiyo led, and a step behind Tinker, the guards followed. Tinker forced herself to amble, trying to stay oriented despite the drug. Except for occasional windows looking out over the sprawling city, the stone passages were maddeningly the same, like a computer-generated video screen with a limited algorithm. Abruptly, they were in a garden courtyard, 
all done in oriental style. A stream meandered through the heart of it, through a bed of mossy rocks. A ribbon of silver here, murmuring over a slight falls, a widening and deepening there, to make a still dark pool full of darting fish. Chimes rang in the wind with stunningly clear tones, and yet, yet, there was something hazy about the whole thing, like a dream. It's the drugs, isn't it? Tinker wasn't sure. Lady Chiyo led her to a gazebo overlooking one of the still ponds. Riki sat in the gazebo, wearing an overlarge muscle shirt and loose black pants, with bare feet. Despite the casual clothes, he perched in the gazebo window, looking as unhappy as a caged bird. He wore earbuds trailing wires down to an old MP3 player. Surprisingly, he was smoking, something an elf could never do. He was alone. Where's Pony? Tinker said. Riki sighed and pulled the earbud from his right ear, letting the music play on in his left. Hopefully, your guard is even now reporting your untimely death, a mid-air stunt resulting in a fall into the river. Of course, the river will be dredged, but that will prove nothing. You're lying. Pony wouldn't betray me. He's not betraying you. We've deceived him. Riki took a deep drag on his cigarette and breathed it out his nose in a twin column of smoke. We have magic that the elves do not. The bending of light and sound to make illusions. Chiyo complained in a foreign language, made harsh by her sharp tones. Riki gazed at Chiyo unrepentant. Stop your barking. I'm in charge. I tell her what I want. Lord Tom Tom gave orders for... He wants her to work. She won't work if she thinks we killed her warrior. Riki stared Chio into silence. The magic works on the lesser elves, but not on you greater bloods, he explained, meaning the Domana. We didn't want to expose the people we have in Pittsburgh. If the elves knew you were kidnapped, they would tear the city apart looking for you. They're already searching. The fewer clues we give them, the better. So we split your guard away and fed him what we wanted him to see. You got increasingly daring with your flying until you fell and the hoverbike crashed. Oh, so tragic. But accidents happen, and your warrior provides the incontestable witness. Strange how she could be relieved and increasingly terrified at the same time. Pony was utterly loyal and safe and oh so far away, Windwolf would never question her death with Pony witnessing it. She clung to hope. What about all the people that saw me being chased? We only know that what is seen is not always correctly perceived. Riki took one last drag of a cigarette and ground the tiny ember out. Think of the difference of being in a race and watching it from the pits. To you, it was clear that you were being chased. What did the average person see? You going fast and dangerous. That matches Pony's story. A hoverbike chasing you? That would be Pony. Did they even see a second or third hoverbike? If they looked away for an instant, probably not. And what if they did? If Pony says no one was chasing you, they must have been mistaken. That must have been another group of hoverbikes racing. She tried to resist the logic, but it was too sound. There would be no rescue. Chiyo murmured something to Riki in the foreign language. 
He nodded, flicking the dead butt out into the garden. So, you understand your situation. I've been knifed in the back by a man I thought was my friend. I am not a man. Nor, regrettably, have I ever been free to be your friend. Riki corrected her almost gently. I was under orders. Penalty for failure greater than you can imagine. Although you will soon be educated in that regard. It hurt to think she had been so wrong. You're a Tengu. Yes. The wings she remembered were massive, but there were no signs of them now, as he sat in the window, even as he flicked away the cigarette butt. Where are your wings? Wordlessly, he turned around. The muscle shirt covered only his front, leaving his muscled back exposed. An elaborate spell had been tattooed onto his skin, from shoulder to waistline in black. He whispered a word, and magic poured through the tracings, making them shimmer like fresh ink. The air hazed around him, and the wings unfolded out of the distortion, at first holographic in appearance, ghosts of crow wings hovering behind him, fully extended. Then they solidified into reality, skin and bone merged into the musculature of his back, glistening black feathers longer than her arm. She couldn't help herself, she reached out and touched one of the primary feathers. It was stiff and unyielding under her fingers. The wings were real, down to the tiny barbs of the feather's web. How? How can they come and go and yet be part of you? They aren't truly real, but solid illusions, crafted out of magic. You should not be telling her this, Chio snapped. Go play with the dogs, Riki said. Shut up, Chiyo cried. Riki spoke another word, and the wings vanished, and only the tattoo remained as evidence. This close to him, and without the distraction of the wings, she could now recognize the song leaking out of the one earbud. It was one of Oil Can's favorite elf rock groups. With a jolt, she recognized the MP3 player as Oil Can's old system. Where did you get that? Your cousin gave it to me when I told him that I had nothing to play music on. Riki gazed at the thumb-sized player. It was kind of him. Have you hurt him? She asked fearfully. No, of course not. Riki glanced toward Chio and added, It would endanger my cover. Chio said something that earned her a glare of disgust from Riki. What did she say? Tinker asked. Something stupid. It's stunning that her kind is considered clever. She must be a throwback to the original bitch. Chiyo curled back her lip in a snarl. At least I'm not from bloodstock of scavengers, easily distracted by bright and shiny toys. Yes. Riki seemed only amused by Chiyo's retort. He gave a suddenly bird-like cock of his head and another verbal poke. But your bloodstock has a tendency to run mad, frothing at the mouth. Tinker took a step back in sudden horror. Your people interbred with animals? No wonder the elves fled back across the worlds, closing gates behind them. The Oni had crossed moral lines that even the Skin Clan hadn't. The two Oni turned to look at her, as if they'd forgotten she was listening. Shut up, Chio snapped, and sulked to the other side of the gazebo. The greater bloods are still pure. Bitterness tainted Riki's expression. They mix their servants with animals at the genetic level to create us lesser bloods. 
We Tengu have the crow's ability to fly at an instinctual level. Chiyo responded to Tinker's questioning gaze with, Don't look at me that way, little fake elf. You're a dirty little human girl in a fancy skin. Thank you. You don't know how good that makes me feel. Riki gave a squawk of surprised laughter. So why did you kidnap me? Tinker asked. Riki sobered. Lord Tomawartomo wants you to build him a gate. Who? Tomawaritomo. Riki sounded out the syllables. He is Winwolf's counterpart among the Oni. Remembering Chio's comment earlier, Tinker asked, Lord Tom-Tom? Riki gave a very human shrug. That's what those of us born on Earth tend to call him. No wonder he passed so easily for human, if he grew up around them. That's why you speak English so well? Yes, I was born in Berkeley, California. Hatched, hatched, Chio barked. If you're going to go all truthful with her, then tell it all. Your mother popped out an egg. Chio measured out a stunningly large sphere with her fingers, and brooded on it to keep it warm, and when the time came, listened all so close, so she could break you out of your shell. And as a child, they kept jesses on your feet to keep you from picking your nose with your toes. Tinker glanced downwards, and noticed for the first time that Riki's toes were stunningly long, thin, agile-looking, and only three in number. Your mother wasn't the woman killed when Lane was crippled. She couldn't have passed the physicals as human. Riki looked at Chio in cold rage and said, I hope you are keeping your focus. You know how angry Lord Tom Tom would be if this failed. Chio went white and silent. For a minute, only the tinny music from Riki's earbud could be heard. And then, like a bubble breaking, the background noise from the garden started again. Chio stared at the ground, panting like a frightened animal. I don't understand, Tinker said. If you can get to Earth, Elf home, and back again, why does he need me to build a gate? Chio giggled and murmured something in their own tongue. Riki shot her an irritated look and explained. When the elves destroyed the door from our world to Earth, they stranded a large group of Tengu and others in China. We've lived in secret among humans, hiding our differences. He lifted his foot up, flexing his toes to demonstrate what differences he meant. Like the elves, we were immortal on our own world, and long lived on Earth. We waited for our chance to return to our own land, our own people. When the gate opened the door between Earth and Elfhome, it also opened a door to Onihira. But it's inconveniently placed. We don't have the ability to move an army through it. The seer's words went through her mind. There is a door, open but not open. Darkness presses against the frame but cannot pass through. The seer must have been talking about the unusable door. But what the hell did the rest mean? The light beyond is too brilliant. It burns the beast. Chio murmured something to Riki which surprised him. Tinker was tempted to kick her. I don't like it when people talk about me in front of me. It's better you don't understand her poison. Riki said. So the seer was right. She was going to be the pivot. You want me to betray Elfhome? I know what they've done to you. They took you and changed you to make you loyal to them. All the while they held you at the palace, I was with your cousin, 
watching him go quietly insane with worry whether they'd bring you back or just decide that you were too dangerous to allow to live. Windwolf would never... She bit off the retort. Riki had no reason to tell her the truth and every reason to lie. Oilcan didn't say anything to me last night. He's a fair man. He wouldn't try to poison you against your husband, not even if what he had to say was the truth. Tinker backed away from him, shaking her head. You've lied to me since the first moment I met you. You're probably lying to me now. You'll say anything to get me to help you. Riki lunged and caught hold of her tightly. Yes, I would, he cried, looking pained. I'd say anything because I know what Lord Tom Tom will do to get his way, and I'd rather not see you go through that. I believe Lord Tomowori Tomo has arranged a demonstration. Chio turned to speak to one of the guards. With a thin shriek of terror, the little oni who had knocked her over the cliff was brought forward between two of the massive guards. He begged in the oni tongue, sobbing. They're going to remove the bones from his left arm, Chio told Tinker in a casual tone, as if what was about to happen had no more import than picking wildflowers. Tinker had a sudden sympathy for black-eyed Susans. All of them, while he's awake. While the guards pinned the oni down, a third wizened dwarf of an oni, with a blood-stained leather apron and bright sharp knives, started to cut. After putting the earbud back in his ear, Riki held her still, made her watch. Tinker curled her arms up tight against her chest, trying hard not to cry. If she had still been on Elfhome, she might have been able to defy them, clinging to the hope that Windwolf and Oilcan would be there to rescue her or even that she could escape. All alone on this strange world, every hand upraised against her, she couldn't find the courage. When it was done, Riki said, Lord Tom Tom expects results. That was another installment in Wind Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judgewitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.